11 Katie Anonymous, Why Child Sexual Abuse Can Never Be Your Fault, Pandora's Project, 2009, www.pans.org/article/sexualabusaisnotirefault.html. 12 How Should I Respond to the Child? Stop it now www.stopitno.org slash OHC content slash how should I respond to the child. 13. The creative interventions tool staying safe. How do we stay safe? Is a useful resource for making these assessments. See creative interventions toolkit, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence, June 2012, http colon slash slash www.creativeinterventions.org slash wp content slash upload slash 2012 slash 06 slash 4.b.c toolkit tools staying safe pre-release version 06.2012.pdf 14 Aurora Levin's Morales, Medicine Stories, History, Culture, and the Politics of Integrity, Cambridge, Massachusetts, South End Press, 1998, 15. 15. This list is based on the Generative Somatics Trauma Healing Process developed by Stacey K. Haynes and Generative Somatics. See generativesomatics.org for more information, particularly the document Arc of Somatic Transformation. HTTP colon slash slash www.generativesomatics.org slash site slash default slash files gs0311 underscore somatic. Arc.pdf. 16. Don't offend. Do you like children in ways you shouldn't? 2019, https colon slash slash www.don'toffend.org slash 17 Mennonite Central Committee, Canada, Circles of Support and Accountability, 2019, https colon slash 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 learn slash more slash circle support accountability COSA. 11, Pods and Pod Mapping Worksheet. Mia Mingus for the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. During the spring of 2014, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, BATIC, began using the term pod to refer to a specific type of relationship within transformative justice, TJ, work. We needed a term to describe the relationship between people who would turn to each other for support around violent, harmful, and abusive experiences, whether as survivors, bystanders, or people who have harmed. These would be the people in our lives that we would call on to support us with our immediate and ongoing safety, accountability and transformation of behaviors, or individual and collective healing and resiliency. Prior to this, we had been using the term community when we talked about transformative justice, but we found that, not surprisingly, many people do not feel connected to a community and, even more so, most people did not know what community meant or had wildly different definitions and understandings of community. For some, community was an overarching term that encompassed huge numbers of people based on identity, for example, the feminist community. For others, community referred to a specific set of arbitrary values, practices, or relationships, for instance, I don't know them well, but we're in community with each other. Some define community simply by geographic location, regardless of relationship or identity, such as the Bay Area community. We found that people romanticized community, or, though they felt connected to a community at large, they had significant and trustworthy relationships with very few actual people who may or may not be part of that community. For example, someone might feel connected to the queer community, but, when asked, could name only two or three people from that queer community they felt they could trust to show up for them in times of crisis, vulnerability, or violence. Although community is a word that we use all the time, 
many people don't know what it is or feel they have never experienced it. This became increasingly confusing when we used terms such as community accountability or community responses to violence and encouraged people to turn to their communities. And this became even more complicated in dealing with intimate and sexual violence because so many people are abused by someone they know and thus the violence, harm, and abuse was often coming from their community. We needed a different term to describe what we meant, and so pods was suggested and it stuck. This is not to say that we don't use the term community still, we do, but we needed to create new language for our work. We knew that people who experience violence, harm, and abuse turn to their intimate networks before they turn to external state or social services. Most people don't call the police or seek counseling or even call anonymous hotlines. If they tell anyone at all, they turn to a trusted friend, family member, neighbor, or coworker. We wanted a way to name those currently in your life that you would rely on, or are relying on, to respond to violence, harm, and abuse. Pod. Your pod is made up of the people that you would call on if violence, harm, or abuse happened to you, if you wanted support in taking accountability for violence, harm, or abuse that you've done, if you witnessed violence, or if someone you care about was being violent or being abused. People can have multiple pods. The people you call to support you when you are being harmed may not be the same people you call on to support you when you have done harm, and vice versa. In general, pod people are often those you have relationship and trust with, though everyone has different criteria for their pods. Once we started using the term pods, we realized a bunch of things. Most people have few solid, dependable relationships in their lives. Much of this is the result of the breaking of relationships, isolation, fear, and criminalization that capitalism requires. We found that for many people, mapping their pod was a sobering process, as many thought their pod would be larger than it actually was. Most people have just one or two people in their pod. We reassure people that this is not a popularity contest, but rather a chance to reflect on why we have so few relationships with the deep trust, reliability, and groundedness we need to respond well to violence. Many people have fewer people they could call on to take accountability for harm they've done than to support them when they have been harmed. Though competent support for surviving violence is rare, accountable support for those taking accountability for harm they have done is even harder to find. More often than not, people end up colluding with abusers or reinforcing the shaming and blaming of survivors in their attempt to support someone in taking accountability for harm, if they stay in relationship with people who have harmed or been violent at all. Asking people to organize their pod was much more concrete than asking people to organize their community. The shared language and concept of pod made transformative justice more accessible. Gone were the fantasies of a giant, magical community response, filled with people we had only surface relationships with. Instead, we challenged ourselves and others to build solid pods of people through relationship and trust. Doing so pushes us to be specific about what those relationships look like and how they are built. It places relationship building at the very center of transformative justice and community accountability work. Pod people don't fall neatly along traditional lines, especially in situations of intimate and sexual violence. People don't necessarily turn to their closest relationships, such as partner, family, or best friends. This is true both because these relationships are often where the violence is coming from, and because the criteria we would use for our pod people are not necessarily the same as those we use, or get taught to use, for our general intimate relationships. We have different and specific kinds of relationships with our pod people, in addition to relationship and trust, 
they often involve a combination of characteristics such as a track record of generative conflict, boundaries, the ability to give and receive feedback, and reliability. These are characteristics and skills that we are not readily taught to value in U.S. society and don't usually have the skill set to support in even our closest relationships. Building analysis was much easier than building the relationship and trust required for one's pod. Once people started to identify their pod, it became clear that most of the people they would call on were not necessarily political organizers or activists and usually didn't have political analysis. This was true even for political organizers and activists who were mapping their own pods. Using the language of pods was a way to meet people where they were and reveal what was already working in their intimate networks. People already had individuals, even if it was just one person, in their lives they would turn to when violence happened. So, this is where we needed to focus our work, instead of trying to build new relationships with strangers who might share a political analysis but had no relationship to each other, let alone trust. We set out to build through our relationships and trust. We then worked to support our folks in cultivating a shared analysis and framework for understanding intimate and sexual violence through, most notably, our transformative justice studies. The Batique focuses on transformative justice responses to child sexual abuse. Growing and deepening our pods helps us build where children already are. Using the concept of pods is a way to reach children where they are because a five-year-old is not going to reach out to us for support, nor should they be expected to spearhead a community accountability process. The more we can grow our own pods and have conversations about protecting and supporting the children and youth in our lives, the better prepared we will be to respond to child sexual abuse in our intimate networks. Relationship and trust, not always political analysis, continue to be two of the most important factors in successful TJ interventions, whether in supporting survivor self-determination and healing or in accountability processes. Though shared language, values, and political understandings can be very useful in responding to violence, these are easier to build where relationship and trust already exist. By building where there are already authentic relationships and trust, rather than trying to piece together shallow versions, we help to set the conditions for successful TJ responses and also for the likelihood that people will respond to violence at all. Many people do not have any pod people. This is a reality for many oppressed and isolated communities and individuals because of how capitalism, oppression, and violence shape our lives. For example, many disabled people are extremely isolated because they lack access and resources, many immigrant women of color are isolated because of language or documentation, and adults, youth, and children who are surviving current abuse such as domestic violence may be isolated by their abusers. We hope that by beginning to build and grow pods where they already exist, or could exist, we can build the conditions to support people who do not have pods. By growing the number of people in the Bay Area who can recognize, talk about, prevent, and respond to violence, we hope to make it more likely that people in need of support will find it in their daily lives. We also believe that orienting from a place of growing pods can help us gradually move away from the structures that keep people isolated. In this way, Building our pods is useful for ourselves and the people in our immediate circles, but it is also part of building a network of pods that could support anyone experiencing violence. Here is our pod mapping worksheet. We use this as a template to help people start to identify who could be in their pods. We invite people to fill out multiple worksheets for their different pods. This is only a basic template, people are welcome to create their own pod maps. Write your name in the middle gray circle. The surrounding bold outlined circles are your pod. 
write the names of the people who are in your pod. We encourage people to write the names of actual individuals rather than categories, such as my church group or my neighbors. The dotted lines surrounding your pod are people who are movable. They are people that could be moved into your pod but need a little more work. For example, you might need to build more relationship or trust with them. Or maybe you've never had a conversation with them about prisons or sexual violence. The larger circles at the edge of the page are for networks, communities, or groups that could be resources for you, such as your local domestic violence direct service organization, your cohort in nursing school, your youth group, or a transformative justice group. Your pods may shift over time as your needs or relationships shift or as people's geographic locations shift. We encourage people to have conversations with their pod people about pods and transformative justice, to actively grow the number of people in their pod, and to support each other in building their pod. Growing a pod is not easy and may take time. In pod work, we measure our successes by the quality of our relationships with one another, and we invest the time it takes to build things like trust, respect, vulnerability, accountability, care, and love. We see building our pods as a concrete way to prepare and build resources for transformative justice in our communities. 12. When it all comes crashing down. Navigating crisis. The Fireweed Collective, formerly known as the Icarus Project. When you or someone close to you goes into crisis, it can be the scariest thing to ever happen. You don't know what to do, but it seems like someone's life might be at stake or they might get locked up, and everyone around is getting more stressed and panicked. Everyone knows a friend who has been there, or has been there themselves. Someone's personality starts to make strange changes, they're not sleeping or sleeping all day, they lose touch with the people around them, they disappear into their room for days, they have wild energy and outlandish plans, they start to dwell on suicide and hopelessness, they stop eating or taking care of themselves, they start taking risks and being reckless. They become a different person. They're in crisis. The word crisis comes from a Greek root meaning judgment. A crisis is a moment of great tension and a moment of meeting the unknown. It's a turning point when things can't go on the way they have, and the situation isn't going to hold. Could crisis be an opportunity for breakthrough, not just breakdown? Can we learn about each other and ourselves as a community through crisis? Can we see crisis as an opportunity to judge a situation and ourselves carefully, not just react with panic and confusion or turn things over to the authorities? Crisis Response Suggestions Working in Teams If you're trying to help someone in crisis, coordinate with other friends and family to share responsibility and stress. If you're the one going through crisis, reach out to multiple people and swallow your pride. The more good help you can get, the easier the process will be and the less you will exhaust your friends. Try not to panic. People in crisis can be made a lot worse if people start reacting with fear, control, and anger. Study after study has shown that if you react to someone in crisis with caring, openness, patience, and a relaxed and unhurried attitude, it can really help settle things down. Keep breathing, take time to do things that help you stay in your body, such as yoga and taking walks, be sure to eat, drink water, and try to get sleep. Be real about what's going on. When people act weird or lose their minds, it is easy to overreact. It's also easy to underreact. If someone is actually seriously attempting suicide or doing something extremely dangerous like lying down on a busy freeway, getting the police involved might save their life. But if someone picks up a knife and is walking around the kitchen talking about UFOs, don't assume the worst and call the cops. Likewise, 
If someone is cutting themselves, it's usually a way of coping and doesn't always mean they're suicidal, unless they are cutting severely. Sometimes people who are talking about the ideas of death and suicide are in a very dangerous place, but sometimes they may just need to talk about painful feelings that are buried. Use your judgment and ask others for advice. Sometimes you just need to wait out crisis. Sometimes you need to intervene strongly and swiftly if the situation is truly dangerous and someone's life is really falling apart. Listen to the person without judgment. What do they need? What are their feelings? What's going on? What can help? Sometimes we are so scared of someone else's suffering that we forget to ask them how to help. Beware of arguing with someone in crisis, their point of view might be off, but their feelings are real and need to be listened to. Once they're out of crisis they'll be able to hear you better, if you are in crisis, tell people what you're feeling and what you need. It is so hard to help people who aren't communicating. Lack of sleep is a major cause of crisis. Many people come right out of crisis if they get some sleep, and any hospital will first get you to sleep if you are sleep deprived. If the person hasn't tried Benadryl, herbal or homeopathic remedies from a health food store, hot baths, rich food, exercise, or acupuncture, these can be extremely helpful. If someone is really manic and hasn't been sleeping for months, though, none of these may work, and you may have to seek out psychiatric drugs to break the cycle. Drugs are also a big cause of crisis. Does someone who regularly takes psych meds suddenly stop? Withdrawal can cause a crisis. Get the person back on their meds, if they want to transition off meds they should do so carefully and slowly, not suddenly, and make sure they are in a safe space. Meds can start working very quickly for some, but for others it can take weeks. Create a sanctuary and meet basic needs. Try to de-dramatize and de-stress the situation as much as possible. Crashing in a different home for a few days can give a person some breathing space and perspective. Perhaps caring friends could come by in shifts to spend time with the person, make good food, play nice music, drag them outside for exercise, spend time listening. Often people feel alone and uncared for in crisis, and making an effort to offer them a sanctuary can mean a lot. Make sure basic needs are met, food, water, sleep, shelter, exercise, and, if appropriate, professional, alternative or psychiatric, attention. Calling the police or hospital shouldn't be the automatic response. Police and hospitals are not saviors. They can make things worse. When you're out of other options, though, you shouldn't rule them out. Faced with a decision like this, get input from people who have a good head on their shoulders and know about the person. Have other options been tried? Did the hospital help in the past? Are people overreacting? Don't assume that it's always the right thing to do just because it puts everything in the hands of the authorities. Be realistic, however, when your community has exhausted its capacity to help and there is a risk of real danger. The alternative support networks we need do not exist everywhere that people are in crisis. The most important thing is to keep people alive. Advanced Directives If you know your crises get bad enough to get you into a hospital, you should use a psychiatric advanced directive or power of attorney. Basically, it's like a living will for crisis, it gives you power and self-control over what happens to you when you go into a crisis. If you start to lose your mind and have a hard time speaking for yourself, people will look at your advanced directive to figure out what to do.18. There is an elaborate advanced directive form at the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law and a simpler one at the Copeland Center for Wellness and Recovery website, or you can just write a letter and sign it. 
Write down who you want contacted if you are in crisis and who you don't want contacted, what hospital you prefer to go to, what medications you do and don't want to be given, what health practitioner you want to work with, and any special instructions for supporters, such as take me out into the woods, help me sleep with these herbs or those pills, feed me kale, when you ask me questions, give me a long time to answer, be patient and don't walk away, or make sure I can see my pets as soon as possible. Write your directive, get it signed by someone and write witness by their name, and date it. Distribute copies so that relevant people are able to access it, such as with a therapist or health practitioner, with family, with people close to you, or with people in any support or activist group you're in. Then, when you go into crisis, people can use your directive as a guide for responding to the situation, and it can be used to help convince hospitals, doctors, and so forth to respect your choices about how to be treated. Directives have some legal weight, but not as much as a living will. Ongoing reforms in mental health law may strengthen the role of directives in the future. On suicide. While it's easy to romanticize certain sides of bipolar disorder, it is a dangerously incomplete picture. If you believe the statistics, one in five untreated manic depressives commit suicide. In the medical establishment's opinion, bipolar disorder is a highly lethal disease. Whether or not you choose to see things this way, the stark fact remains that the extremes of bipolar mood swings have driven thousands and thousands of people to kill themselves, and these swings can happen with astounding speed. There is no accepted theory about why one person who is suicidal ends up doing it and another doesn't. There is no perfect answer to what you should do when someone is suicidal, and no reliable way to prevent someone from killing themselves if they really want to. Suicide is, and will probably always be, a mystery. There are, however, a lot of things that people have learned, things that come from a real sense of caring and love for people who have died or who might die, and truths people have realized when they were at the brink and made their way back. Here are a few we've collected. Feeling suicidal is not giving up on life. Feeling suicidal is being desperate for things to be different. People are holding out for a better person they know they can be and a better life they know they deserve, but they feel totally blocked. Discover the vision for a better life and see how it is only possible to realize that vision if you stick around to find out what can happen. Turn some of that suicidal energy toward risking change in life. Find out what behavior pattern or life condition you want to kill instead of taking your whole life. Is there a way to change those patterns that you haven't yet tried? Who can you turn to for help changing those patterns? People who are suicidal are often really isolated. They need someone to talk with confidentially on a deep level someone who is not going to judge them or reject them. Did something happen? What do you need? Be patient with long silences, let the person speak. Let people ask for anything, an errand, food, a place to stay, and the like. Often, suicidal people don't want to be honest because they're so ashamed of what they are feeling, and that is an incredibly hard thing to admit. Be patient and calm. People need to hear things that might seem obvious, you are a good person. Your friendship has helped me. You are a cool person and you have done cool things, even if you can't remember them now. You have loved life and you can love it again. There are ways to make your feelings change and to make your head start working better. If you kill yourself, nothing in your life will ever change. You will hurt people you love. You will never know what could have happened. Your problems are very real, but there are other ways to deal with them. Suicidal people are often under the sway of a critical voice or belief that lies about who and what they are. It might be the voice of a parent, an abuser, 
someone who betrayed them, or simply the negative version of themselves that depression and madness have put in their brain. Usually this voice is not perceiving reality accurately. Get a reality check from someone close and stop believing these voices. You aren't a failure, and change isn't impossible. And you are not alone. Other people have felt pain this deep and terrible, and they have found ways to change their lives and survive. You are not the only one. There are ways to get past this and change your life. 18 Bazelton Center for Mental Health Law has templates available at http colon slash slash www.bazelon.org slash our work slash mental health system slash advanced directive slash. For the forms, http colon slash slash www.bazelon.org slash issues slash advanced directive slash templates dot htm and http colon slash slash www.mentalhealthrecovery.com slash pdfs slash crisisplan.pdf. 13. Why no non-consensual act of rescue? Trans Lifeline. The Trans Lifeline is a grassroots hotline and microgrants organization offering direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis, for the trans community, by the trans community. Founded in 2014 as a peer support crisis hotline, the hotline was, and still is, the only service in the country in which all operators are transgender. Are you going to call someone on me if I tell you how I'm feeling? That is one of the most common questions we get from callers. And one of the most common questions we get from people who work in crisis intervention and the general public is why our answer is generally no. We will only call authorities in three circumstances, if a caller asks us to, if there is a credible threat to a third party, or to comply with laws regarding suspected child abuse and neglect. Since we launched, Trans Lifeline has abided by three unwavering principles. All our operators must be trans. We believe in the power of peer support from shared experience. We do not call emergency services to assist a caller in danger without their request. In these principles we stand out starkly from many other hotlines, and we are often asked why it is so important to us to abide by the third principle. How can you save lives if you can't intervene? Active rescue, or the practice of a crisis hotline choosing to dispatch law enforcement or emergency services to a caller's location, is a very common occurrence on suicide hotlines in the United States. Operators are often trained on the theory that any caller who mentions suicidal ideation is at risk and requires immediate intervention. While at first glance this might be an understandable blanket policy, Non-consensual active rescue entails a number of risks that are made significantly more severe when a caller is trans. In October 2015, Trans Lifeline surveyed about 800 trans people across the United States regarding their experiences with suicide hotline use. Approximately 70% of the respondents stated that they had never called a suicide hotline. Over half of those respondents specified that they had been in crisis, but they did not feel safe calling a hotline. Approximately a quarter of respondents stated that they had interacted with law enforcement or emergency personnel as a result of a crisis call, while one in five had been placed on an involuntary psychiatric hold. Respondents were also asked to rate, on a scale of one to five, how comfortable they felt interacting with doctors, nurses, paramedics, firefighters, and police officers. The average response for each profession was under three, with police officers being the lowest, between one and two. Over and over again, we hear from our community, including our own volunteers, that one of the main deciding factors in whether they reach out for help is whether they will have to deal with active rescue. 
Trans Lifeline does not engage in non-consensual active rescue because, in our community, active rescue can place our community at increased risk for suicidality. According to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, at least a quarter of respondents reported being denied equal treatment or being harassed, disrespected, or assaulted in a hospital, and at least one-fifth of respondents reported mistreatment in a mental health setting. Nearly half of respondents reporting having been harassed, asked to leave a public space, or assaulted after having to present incongruent identity documents. Well over half of respondents stated that they would not be willing to go to police for help because of how they would be treated for being trans. Over half of respondents who had interacted with police who knew or suspected that they were trans reported being misgendered, verbally harassed, or physically or sexually assaulted by officers. In the United States, police training does not tend to prioritize mandatory crisis intervention. These trainings are often optional, limited, and overshadowed by training that encourages disproportionate responses, including frequent use of force, for individuals in mental health crises. In simpler terms, forcing any person in crisis to interact with armed police officers poses a risk of that person being harmed or killed. Law enforcement and emergency personnel training on how to respectfully and competently interact with trans people in crisis is functionally non-existent. The risk of harm or use of deadly force predictably increases when the person in crisis is a person of color or disabled. 19 for trans people in rural or conservative areas, where cultural competency tends to be lower both in the general population and among law enforcement officers, the risks of abuse are further exacerbated for very poor and homeless trans people, and, not surprisingly, they are highly represented among trans lifeline callers. Beyond the risk of harm from law enforcement, Non-consensual active rescue poses several other risks for our community. Young callers frequently share that they have experienced non-consensual active rescue after sharing suicidal ideation with another support line. Many of these young people are not out to their families, and the active rescue effectively makes the decision for them, which can result in abuse, rejection, or, on some occasions, sudden and unexpected homelessness. Hospitalization following active rescue can add an additional layer of risk. Around one-third of trans people live below the poverty line, a rate twice that of the general population. For many callers, being charged for an ambulance or hospital bill can make the difference between survival and being out on the street. Depending on where a caller lives, a history of involuntary commitment can also preclude them from receiving gender-affirming medical treatment, such as surgery, in the future or greatly decrease their chances. In looking at suicidality and risk factors specific to our community, we find that some of the most prominent factors that contribute to ongoing suicidality are alienation, transphobic treatment, especially by people in positions of power, helping professions, or family, perceived burdensomeness, lack of access to material resources, and exclusion from medically transitioning or living authentically in one's affirmed gender. These factors overlap with the risks posed by non-consensual active rescue. In other words, were we to engage in non-consensual active rescue, we could increase the suicidality risk factors for a caller. Finally, we must consider the impact of non-consensual active rescue policies on callers who are not in immediate crisis. In our experience, peer support is impossible to provide without rapport, trust, and respect for the caller's agency. Countless callers have told us that they would not be comfortable speaking to us about anything from walking their dog to getting top surgery to coming out to family unless we assure them that we will not call authorities without their consent. Once we give that reassurance, callers are able to trust us, 
often enough to share more difficult thoughts too. Reflexively responding to suicidal ideation by calling a non-consensual act of rescue amounts to handing off a caller to someone else, which is generally not what callers seek or even what would benefit them. In our experience, suicidal people are some of the most resilient people, suicidal ideation usually doesn't occur to a person arbitrarily. For many in our community, chronic suicidal ideation is a response to trauma and can be managed. When we validate each other's feelings, share lived experiences, and speak candidly about crisis and suicidality, we have a higher rate of success than we would if a caller felt their trust violated by non-consensual active rescue. At Trans Lifeline, we view people in crisis as human beings with agency and the ability to have a conversation without a need for non-consensual intervention, and we see positive results from that approach. Many of these results, which are too often ignored in suicide prevention culture, apply to all people, not just trans people. Any person in crisis is likely to experience it as a result of real, material circumstances, and we see it as our duty to speak to those circumstances from a place of trust and support. Law enforcement can place people at risk, especially callers who are poor, people of color, or living with physical or mental illness. Laying the groundwork for support without the risk of non-consensual intervention can save lives, and, ultimately, saving lives is the mission we serve. 19 The Autistic Self-Advocacy Network's Asan Joint Statement on the Death of Caden Clark Speaks to the Death of a Suicidal Trans Man, at the Hands of Police. Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, ASAN, Asan Joint Statement on the Death of Caden Clark, February 8, 2016 https colon slash slash autisticadvocacy.org slash 2016 slash 02 slash asan joint statement death of Caden Clark. 14. Maybe you don't have to call 911? Know your options. Oakland Power Projects. Oakland Power Projects builds capacity to invest in practices, relationships, and resources that build community power and well-being. We can make our families and neighborhoods safe and healthy without relying on the cops. Critical Resistance's Oakland chapter spent more than two years fighting a successful campaign against gang injunctions in Oakland, California, as part of the Stop the Injunctions Coalition. In the spring of 2013, as the city abandoned its two temporary injunctions, in North Oakland and the Fruitvale, and moved on to other policing schemes that continued to fail the people of Oakland, Critical Resistance, CR, began to consider taking up new work. Through a steady and intentional process, Critical resistance members talked to close allies from the Stop the Injunctions Coalition to get a sense of the perceptions and experience of the current policing landscape in Oakland, and asked what work could reduce the reach of policing into Oaklanders' daily lives and take steps toward making policing obsolete. The Oakland Power Projects, OPP, grew out of these conversations and built on the idea, held by members of the CR Oakland Chapter's Anti-Policing Working Group that people in Oakland had the resources and capacities to create alternatives to police responses. In OPP, we identify projects through a multi-step process. We start by having one-on-one interviews with Oaklanders about their experiences of their city and neighborhoods, their experiences with police, and their dreams and ideas for creating well-being in Oakland. Through collective listening and reflection on the themes, concerns, and ideas that arise in interviews, we map out common threads. From those, we choose a project to develop, working with the people who had the underlying idea and with others who are well-situated to begin building capacity and developing strategies around the project theme. Together, we workshop ideas and needs to arrive at a shape, goals, 
and next steps for the project, along with a core of people to organize it and carry it out. Know your options. As we developed the first OPP project, CR Oakland organizers spoke with Oakland residents. Health emerged as a broad theme, people needed resources but didn't feel they could access them in Oakland without police involvement. Through bringing together people who shared this concern with healthcare workers from a range of fields, sites, and areas of expertise, we identified and began to develop resources for emergent and preventative health needs. These included medical kits that people can use for first response emergencies or for everyday use to help prevent calls to 911 and a workshop series combining basic information about the prison industrial complex, PIC, and policing with critical healthcare information for responding to emergency health, chronic health, opioid overdose prevention, and mental health-related situations. These workshops are called Know Your Options, and the goals are to increase people's options in the face of medical, mental health, and other kinds of emergencies, to get help and meet people's needs without calling the police, and, if the police are called, to prepare people for their arrival. By the spring of 2018, the OPP Healthcare Worker Cohort together with Critical Resistance had offered over 50 Know Your Options workshops around the Bay Area. In this guide, we share some information from the workshop series and examples of resources made by the Health Worker Cohort. We encourage you to make your own resource list with specific information for your area. Below, you'll find materials that are, in many instances, specific to Oakland City policies and practices, but we encourage you to use them as a starting point for where you live and work. You can find out more about how your local government addresses 911 dispatch, learn about naloxone access, and find allies in local healthcare sites, including clinics, hospitals, and community-led spaces. Use these to map your local resources, relationships, and needs. We recommend Standing Up for Our Communities, Why We Need a Police-Free Future, by Rachel Herzing, for a beginning community and self-assessment plan.20 Also, practicing collective and individual planning with these tools can strengthen your capacity to use them confidently during emergencies. In the trainings we offer, some of the key components of which are outlined in the rest of this chapter, we say that we have options, not rules. In other words, we can't tell you what to do in every situation, but in the spirit of reducing police involvement we focus on teaching people options, which may include but are not limited to 911. For example, in most cities there's an alternate ambulance number that goes directly to the fire department. You can consider developing your own local training so people can build confidence and knowledge with some of the tools in this chapter. From the OPP Health Access and Anti-Policing Workshop you can ground yourself and everyone involved in an emergent situation with the following tools, which draw on an abolitionist political framework. When approaching the scene, assess your ability slash capacity to show up in this situation. What are potential dangers slash risks? What are your needs slash boundaries? What is appropriate for you to do? De-escalate yourself by grounding yourself. Take a deep breath. Feel your feet. Name something around you related to your five senses to get into your body. In addition to these immediate questions and techniques when a situation emerges, it can be helpful to follow these community caregiver basics. Introduce yourself. Humanize the interaction by exchanging a hello. Ask for consent. If the person is conscious, ask them what they want. Ask before touching someone. Do you want me to call emergency services? Do you have any concerns around calling 911 or if the police show up? 
continue to check in with the person about their needs throughout the process, and involve the injured person as much as possible. Check your assumptions. People and their bodies have different experiences of normal. Stay with the person. You can function as this person's advocate in navigating possible police response and advocate for them with EMTs and so on. Taking charge of the situation. Things to call out. Does anyone have any medical training? Is anyone close to this person? If applicable, we're not calling the cops or 911. Roles to assign, if possible. Anchor, lead. Community to escalator. Police liaison. Medical advocate. Non-responsive person. If the injured person does not respond when you arrive at the scene of an accident. Red flag, call for an ambulance, stay with injured person, and, if trained, begin CPR. ABC, airway, breathing, circulation, or cab, circulation, airway, breathing. Airway, no signs of breathing. Roll onto back and open airway. Breathing, if not, start rescue breathing. Circulation, if no pulse, start CPR. Serious bleeding, stop the leak with pressure, use gloves. Things you can do. Stay with the injured person, talk with them and keep them calm. Be a buffer and advocate when police arrive. Give a focused report to EMS. Stabilize neck in case of cervical fractures. We demonstrate this in our workshops. Support airway, head tilt, chin lift, if vomiting, turn on side to protect, then clear obstruction. Hold pressure on bleeding wounds, direct pressure and elevation of extremity above heart. Keep the person warm. Rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation. Offer emotional support. If you take someone to the hospital or clinic. Some ways to reduce harm in these places. Give a focused report to EMS. Have someone stay with the person as an advocate. Ask the person if they would like to do something with their belongings. Or, you can do something else. Call a nurse practitioner, medical doctor, wilderness first responder, or health worker in your community. Create emergency response teams in your communities. Follow-up work. Ask the person if they'd like you to contact any support people in their life and let them know what happened. Debrief with community so experiences can be shared and so we can all learn what happens as a result of the risks we engage in. Access trainings to cultivate more skills. Self-care. Make sure you're taking care of your own health, drink water, eat food, take deep breaths, engage in activities that relieve stress, and the like. Be compassionate toward yourself. From the Opioid and Overdose Workshop. Recognizing an opiate overdose. Symptoms include the following. Unresponsive to words or pain. Not breathing, or very slow or shallow breathing. Turning pale, blue, or ashy, especially in lips or fingernails. Becoming limp. Throwing up. Making snoring or gurgling sounds. This can look a lot like alcohol poisoning, so try to figure out what they took. If in doubt, give Narcan. Your response has three steps. 1. Check for responsiveness. Say, I'm going to Narcan you. Kick foot, call their name, get their attention. Provide a pain stimulus by doing a sternum rub, 
rub your knuckles firmly on their chest bone, pinching them, or pressing on a nail painfully. Continue to watch their chest and feel for breathing. 2. Engage in rescue breathing, optional. Open airway by tilting the head and lifting the chin, then clear their airway if you see something. Pinch the nose and breathe into their mouth with your mouth sealed over or use a mask, a breath for them, a breath for yourself. 3. Administer naloxone. Administer naloxone through an injection into the muscle or in another form, nasal spray, auto-injector. Monitor, and if they don't begin breathing or responding within 2 or 3 minutes, give a second dose. Administering naloxone, aka Narcan. Naloxone is available as a liquid you administer with a syringe or in a form that allows you to administer it through a person's nose, like a nasal spray. If you're using a syringe, draw up 1 cc, all of it, into a syringe. Inject 1 dose, 1 cc, into the muscle areas of the upper outer thigh, upper arm, or upper butt. Continue rescue breathing. If the first dose doesn't work within 2 or 3 minutes, give a second dose. Aftercare. Anticipate that the person may have a physical reaction. If they use regularly, they are suddenly in acute withdrawal, this can include vomiting or diarrhea, but most likely will include serious irritability or flu-like symptoms. Narcan is short-acting, it lasts 40 to 90 minutes. You still need to monitor them or get them to a hospital within that time because naloxone will wear off and they could go back into an overdose. Do what's needed to be a buffer if law enforcement arrives. You can give another dose if it seems they're overdosing again. If the person is not going to be medically monitored, stay with them or ask someone else to. Inform the person who overdosed and the person staying with them what to expect. Give them an additional dose if you have one in case it is needed. Be proactive. Do you know what resources are available in the communities where you spend time? Where are the clinics and hospitals near you? Are there medical professionals on your block? Do you know if the people around you have specific medical needs or people they feel safe with? Harm Reduction Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. Harm reduction is also a movement for social justice built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. Harm reduction actively challenges narratives that have been told about people who use drugs. Giving people access to tools like naloxone is a way to reduce the harm of both drugs and the war on drugs. Giving naloxone to community members has been done in this way since the mid-1990s and has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. It started as an illegal practice of distributing this safe prescription drug without prescriptions. People have since advocated for laws, such as the Good Samaritan Law and the Overdose Treatment Law in California, to protect people who distribute, carry, and administer naloxone. SAGE, Self-Control, Assessment, Give Help, Emergency Services Buffer Response to a Psychosocial Crisis 1. Self-de-escalation Encountering a potential emergency situation can engage our body's natural stress response, which will move us away from our ability to think clearly. In order to be effective, we can take three quick steps to interrupt this reaction. Breathe. Breathing is the easiest way to interrupt the stress response. Because your body is preparing to move quickly, fight, or hide, most people's breathing changes. If you're holding your breath, let it out. If you're breathing too rapidly, slow it down. If you're not getting enough oxygen with each breath,
deep in it. Grounding. When the stress response kicks in, you may lose the ability to sense where your body ends and the rest of the world begins. To reset this, you can touch something, touch your hand to your leg, touch your fingers together, feel your feet on the ground. Self-talk. Have a short phrase you say to yourself in an emergency situation. Make it three to five words. Some examples might be, I'm okay, it's going to be all right, or one, two, three, four, five. You can also coach the other person through these steps. You can model calm breathing for them. You can ask them to touch something or to notice where one of their body parts is touching something. You can ask what they'd like to be called. 2. Assessment. Now that you're as calm as you can be, you can assess the situation. Here are some things to ask yourself. Is what's happening imminently dangerous? Is someone currently being harmed or about to be harmed? Is there a medical emergency? Is it safe for me to try to help? How can I minimize the threat to the person? Is there something they are afraid of that I can remove? Can I make changes to the environment, such as reducing noise or other stimuli? Can I redirect traffic? What are my resources? Are there people around who can help or who know this person? Can I establish a connection with this person? Can I introduce myself and offer help? Here are some questions you may ask the person, though it is best not to ask all the questions at once, can you tell me what happened slash what's going on? How can I help you feel safe? Is there someone I can call for you? What has helped you in the past? It is important not to assume that you know what is happening for them or what their baseline is. Address physical needs and readily available resources. Do you need water? A blanket? A snack? It may be helpful to ask orienting questions. What can I call you? Do you know where you are? Do you know what day it is? 3. Give help. Assess the environment and try in your own responses and actions not to escalate the situation. You can do the following. Try to keep your body posture open. Give the person as much eye contact as they feel comfortable with. Keep hands visible. Keep a neutral expression. Let go of those furrowed brows. Use a half smile. Keep your voice at a steady volume and pace, unless you must raise it to give directions to ensure safety. Think about removing energy from the situation, not adding to it. For panic attacks. Use the self-control techniques from above. Something very cold to the brow bone can help, such as an ice pack or a refrigerated soda or metal bottle. For someone in psychological distress, psychosis, bad trip, manic behavior, trauma reaction, or suicidal thoughts. Remember to use basic motivational interviewing techniques for a patient-centered approach to communication, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summarize, OARS. Stay with the person. Continue to assess how to make the environment safe for the person or help the person get to a safe environment. Create a suicide watch. Find people who can stay with the person in ships until the person is out of crisis. 4. Emergency Services Buffer If emergency personnel have been called or you've assessed that the medical emergency or imminent danger is such that you must enact emergency services, take these steps to protect the person from further harm by emergency services personnel. Introduce yourself and your skills for helping. Ask, is it okay if I try to help you? Ask how you can help, what do you need? What can I do to help? Do you have any issues with 911 or the police?
Can I help you contact someone you trust? Stay with the person and be an advocate for when police arrive by taking the following steps ask what name they want to use in front of the police. Observe, or record, police activity. State to the police, and repeat as needed, this person needs medical attention. Make sure they get the care or help they need. These are some of the components of the workshops offered through the first Oakland Power Project. We continue to offer and refine these workshops through the ongoing development of resources, experiences, and skills among organizers, health workers, and other community members. 21. 20. Rachel Herzing, Standing Up for Our Communities, Why We Need a Police-Free Future, Truth Out, March 7, 2017 https colon slash slash truthout.org slash articles slash standing up for our communities why we need a police free future slash 21 learn more about the Oakland Power Projects, including these resources, our process, and new projects, at www.oaklandpowerprojects.org. 15. Excerpts from the Who Security Is It Anyway? Toolkit 22. Laura Brooks and Miriam Kaba. The cops have youth workers and homeless youth pushed up against the front of the community center, legs and arms spread. The security guard in the community center carries a gun and sexually harasses young, black transgender women who access the job training program. The cops enter the drop-in center without warrants, intimidating young people and threatening to arrest youth workers for asserting the program's legal rights. The church, which houses an overnight shelter, is forced to install surveillance cameras. During the years that both of us were youth workers and advocates for young people, and that one of us directed a youth center, we have repeatedly heard of or witnessed incidents like these and worse. Young people in group homes, at drop-in centers, in homeless shelters, and at recreational facilities are encountering highly securitized spaces that are quick to punish and expel them. Institutional violence within community centers, healthcare organizations, and social services, in concert with the helping industry's increasing collusion with and reliance on law enforcement, fuels the prison pipeline. Working in collaboration with youth workers from across Chicago, this toolkit evolved from practicing violence prevention in complex spaces, holding youth and adult workshops, engaging in thousands of conversations, attending meetings convened from organizational crisis due to the impact of policing and surveillance, learning from strategies used at the Broadway Youth Center, BYC and drawing on research released by Young Women's Empowerment Project, YWEP, and Project NIA. Most importantly, this work is informed by the experiences of healthcare and social service consumers, patients, clients, and participants, individuals who filed grievances, reported violence to UEP's bad encounter line, 23 demanded better services for themselves and their communities, and organized their communities to fight back. Violence Prevention, Intervention, and transformation strategies. Practical strategies for youth milieus, drop-in programs, or group work. Individual-slash-group staff interventions. Develop a weekly group that addresses, prevents, and interrupts violence. Discuss concerns, issues, or flags about youth participants, generate opportunities to prevent or interrupt all forms of violence in your space, and develop proactive transformation plans. The most effective transformation plans are created in partnership with young people. Document and centralize this process so that it is available to all staff. Develop a communication plan. Regularly communicate updates about youth participants. Who is going to communicate the transformation slash accountability plan? 
How do we collectively welcome a youth participant back into the space? Youth workers create individualized plans with young people as a way to prevent violence and reduce harms in chaotic milieus or drop-in spaces. This could look like an agreement to check in for five minutes at the beginning of a drop-in or before a group starts, is there anything that you need from us today? Or how can I support your self-care today, however you define it? If the relationship is further along, you can ask, how are you feeling in your body today? Reminders about the plan, I just want to remind you of your transformation plan. Insert brief overview of what has been agreed upon, do you have any questions about it? Identifying a quiet space that is always accessible to young people, combinations of quiet group space and one-on-one space provide different options for youth to take care of themselves. Using one-on-one time with a young person to talk about trauma, create a list of triggers in the space, for instance, people getting too close to me when they are trying to pass me, people moving my belongings, and so on, and ways to respond to them. Allow youth to practice working through these moments in your space. Affirm when young people are working hard and stretching themselves in group spaces. Non-shaming boundary setting in groups. Create a universal cue that indicates to both youth and youth workers that someone is asserting a boundary, whether it be to not touch me, hug me, touch my belongings, or talk to me that way. For example, respect the limit. Create intentional and thoughtful responses to verbal violence. For example, a youth worker uses the words keep it cute to interrupt moments when we say things that are hurtful or shady. These are words that young people can also use when responding to verbal attacks. Create group and community space to discuss, define, and respond to shade or hurtful reading. Create working agreements and connect it back to internalized oppression, which is often the primary root cause. Staff roles and considerations. Designate a youth worker to watch for vibes. The vibes person possesses strong relationships with different young people and has strong skills in mediating conflict and assessing for crisis. This person should be moving throughout the shared community space during the entire program and is responsible for reading vibes and checking in with other youth workers and youth. Responsibilities may include the following. Supporting the capacity of the person working reception and or greeting young people. Keeping the team updated when a new person enters the space and requires an orientation or introduction. Reminding youth workers to follow up with young people, for instance, following up on an issue gathering more information about a situation that needs resolution, discussing a transformation plan, and so forth. Engaging youth throughout the entire accountability process. Identify a point person to maintain contact with youth participants when they are unable to access the space. Space considerations. The physical space of a program or drop-in space is one of the most important violence prevention elements. This could look like Creating multiple spaces for young people to vent frustrations and release emotions. This could be a space for people to dance or a private space that is always available for emergency mediation. Designating a self-care space can look many different ways. Identify a room within your space for resting and quiet. Intentionally creating spaces with specific structures, weekly schedules, and purposes. For example, what will our working agreements in the computer room be? What is the individual capacity for each room, 6 people or 60 people? How many youth workers are needed for each room? Building structures and systems. Document and process daily. Create an efficient method to discuss youth participants, areas of concern, and opportunities for growth and learning.
Facilitate intentional orientations for new youth participants. Create a 15-minute, relational orientation that shares messaging around values, mission, services, and expectations. Provide youth with a packet of referrals and resources when a consequence, involving time out of the space, has been decided. Consider designing ways for young people to have access to basic needs, like hygiene supplies or sack lunches, when they are unable to access services. Just because young people make a mistake doesn't mean they shouldn't have access to human needs, like food and soap. Create an intentional process for young people aging out of your services, this is language that social workers use to describe young people who are no longer eligible for services because of their age. As expected, this time produces incredible anxiety for young people and often means an exponential decrease in supportive spaces and programs once young people turn 25, in other communities, young people age out of certain services at 21. Host weekly community meetings with space for young people to discuss issues related to the space, accessibility, and resources. Receive this feedback with open hearts and minds. It is a great sign of investment when young people take time to offer feedback and critiques to help us evaluate our programs and services. Implement an accessible grievance policy. Train youth workers and young people on how to use it as a tool for advocacy and meaningful feedback. Create learning spaces for youth that incorporate theater of the oppressed components that ask youth participants and youth workers to experience, play, and share ideas. Redefine engagement to include space for resting, self-care, and community care. Let us eliminate this idea that young people are doing nothing in our spaces. No young person is doing nothing when they are surviving, 24-7. Give youth more control of the space. Train, support, and pay young people for their leadership and expertise as it relates to facilitating community meetings and workshops, running a food pantry or clothing drive, or helping with the daily meal. Create and practice a plan to protect safety and privacy when an emergency 911 call is made. Investing in staff and volunteers. Training. Provide ongoing in-house trainings to develop staff and youth on issues related to violence, oppression, internalized violence-slash-oppression, violence prevention, harm reduction, and consent. Healing. Build practices into the daily work that support youth workers impacted by violence and its devastating impact on our communities. Top 10 Ways Staff and Young People Can Reduce the Harms of Security Guards Advocate for alternatives to on-site security guards. Less expensive ways to keep our community spaces, clinics, and youth programs safe include increasing the presence of youth workers, patient navigators, and greeters in high-traffic areas or shared spaces. Other examples include hosting safety labs, without the presence of security guards, for staff and young people to create and practice strategies to prevent, interrupt, and transform violence specific to the program or organization. Learn about the complaint and grievance process before something happens. Ask a staff member to show you the forms and ask questions about how the process works. Some questions to ask include the following, is there a different process for on-site security guards? Does the organization have a grievance officer? How does this process hold security guards accountable? Who supervises and trains the security guards? File a complaint or grievance when on-site security harasses, intimidates, threatens, or harms you. If you have a staff person that you trust, this person can also help you complete and file the complaint. If you want to file a complaint anonymously, find out how that process works to protect your confidentiality. 
safety plan with your friends and chosen family. Share what you have learned about the grievance and complaint process with your friends and family. Some security guards work for a police department and can arrest you. Make sure your friends know your safety plan. Safety plan with a staff person. Ask them directly if you can request that they be present if you are ever detained and questioned on site by a security guard or law enforcement. What are the ways that a staff person can support you? This may include asking them to call legal hotlines or providing them with consent, in advance, to notify a friend or family member in the event of your arrest. Demand staff presence when you are being detained or arrested on site. Request that a staff person is present whenever a security guard is detaining you. File a complaint if you are ever detained in a room without the presence of additional staff. If you are forced to leave a building or program by staff or on-site security guards, follow up with a staff person that you trust. Do not return to the building. They may try to arrest you when you return. Staff can ask for transparency around the number and type of arrests that occur within the building, including the date and time when they occurred. If there is a certain issue occurring frequently, this may be an opportunity to gather staff and young people to create and practice specific interventions that prevent the harm of youth being arrested. Similarly, this is an opportunity to examine staffing patterns and capacity. For example, if most of the arrests of young people occur between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. on weeknights, it is important to explore creative strategies that may directly respond to this trend. Staff can file complaints when security guards harass, intimidate, undermine, or threaten them. If it is happening to you, it is most certainly happening to young people. Staff may request that security guards leave the spaces where staff and young people are working through conflict or community issues. The presence of security guards often exacerbates violence and conflict and negatively impacts trust and relationship building between young people and staff. By requesting that security staff leave the space, young people and staff are trusted in their abilities to de-escalate and mediate conflict in ways that are usually more effective and long-term. 22 The Complete Toolkit is available here https colon slash slash www.thepesis.org slash who security slash 23 before closing its doors in 2013 uep was a member-based social justice organizing project for girls and transgender youth with current or previous experience in the sex trade or street economy uep's 2012 study bad encounter line provides critical feedback for those of us working within the social service and healthcare industries see angel torres pause naima and the Young Women's Empowerment Project, Bad Encounter Line, a participatory action research project, Chicago, UEP, 2012, https://uepchicago.files.wordpress.com/2012/09/badencounterlinereport2012.pdf. 16. Excerpt from Community Defense Zone Starter Guide. Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, GLAR, Mijente, and Puente, Arizona. Why we need community defense. Across the country, we see increased racism, injustice, and criminalization just days into Trump's presidency. We know these problems didn't start with Trump, but we have real reason to believe these problems will escalate. Whole communities are being targeted and attacked, there are diminishing options to petition government because of the balance of forces and toxic politics that is taking hold at the federal level. Our silence will not stop what's happening. We need to organize. When we say organizing, we are referring to the most classic definition, uniting people to fight back for a common goal. For communities being targeted by the Trump administration, 
specifically immigrants and refugees, Muslims, LGBTQ, and Black communities, we must create community-based sanctuary as well as advocate for policies at the local and state levels. To truly build community protection, we must acknowledge and include the ongoing issues of mass incarceration and criminalization that have ravaged communities across the country. Our objective with sanctuary is not to arrive at the status quo, in fact, we need to expand its meaning and its impact. Because Trump's regime does not even pretend to represent us, we must organize to resist, defend ourselves, and transform our communities, county by county, town by town, city by city. It is imperative that we organize where we live, work, party, and pray in order to attract more people, build leadership, and make change in an arena that is within reach right now. We can bring people together to rekindle our most precious shared values and spark actions to build power and make a real difference in local communities. We know that many people are doing different kinds of work right now, but we also have heard from many people about the need for templates for where to start under the new reality of the Trump era. A few things about this guide. It is designed to be adaptable for small towns or larger cities, and it recognizes that the pace and approach in building base or waging policy change campaigns are different across place. We hope it's useful across that spectrum of local context. It has framing, ideas, and tools that are adapted from red state organizing veterans. All of the contributing ideas have been tried out by organizers in red states under hostile state and local governments. We believe people who have organized and resisted in hostile conditions, whether because of group identity or local-slash-state government, have very important contributions in this time. It emphasizes how we might be able to reach beyond our existing circles and engage non-activists we encounter in a variety of ways. This training is meant to be paired with Know Your Rights materials to help facilitate greater understanding and recognition that all communities have inalienable rights, regardless of skin color, religious creed, country of origin, or whether they speak English. Goals Identify the needs of communities who are being attacked and targeted by long-standing and emerging policies and practices. The best way to do this is through ensuring both the engagement and leadership of these communities. Get local elected and appointed officials to support demands and policy to expand and defend sanctuary and create community defense zones. Recruit a base of supporters, with leadership and participation of vulnerable communities, for community defense zones. Create various ways for people to engage and support, specifically through activities and commitments from your base of supporters. Bring everyday people and local communities into the fight for expanded sanctuary. Nurture and support leadership of people targeted by the Trump regime. Connect different community leaders and members targeted by the Trump regime to each other. Activities One of the main questions that will arise in the formation of a community defense zone is, what do you want me to do? Developing locally relevant and creative responses to this question will be an ongoing task. The list below is meant as a starter list to help spark the process, providing initial answers to how people can participate. Reach out to identify supporters, see where people stand, and recruit committee members. Distribute posters, yard signs, and window stickers. Hold a press conference with supporters, including statements from community leaders, this doesn't solely include elected officials, to demonstrate widespread and growing support. Hold a community meeting with people who have signed on to determine local needs and next steps. Hold community building events to get more sign-ons. For example, you could hold potlucks, sports, movie screenings, children's activities.
hold fundraisers to support directly affected communities. For example, this could include costs associated with legal fees, moving expenses, rapid response, and loss of employment. Outreach The main purpose of outreach is to build a base of human beings who support the campaign. This base can then be mobilized into action, to some degree, as needed. Not everyone recruited will be equally involved, and that is fine. But the more people who endorse or align with the campaign, the more people you have to call on locally for support for the work that needs to be done. Another goal is to educate communities around what is needed, what is happening, what their rights are, and that creating community defense zones is possible. Many of us also feel it is an opportunity to remind us all that constitutional protection should exist and we deserve to have it. The outreach invites different members of a community to take a side and a stand on what is happening. It also creates an opportunity for people to join in and do their part to protect the community from the threats we are under. Many members of communities and groups do not know that we have a constitutional right to not allow ICE, police, or federal agents into our homes, buildings, and spaces unless they file a court order signed by a judge. The posters, signs, doormats, and placards we create can remind us, every time we enter or exit our homes, place of business, school, or faith community, what we believe in and what we deserve. Organizing can be contagious and give us courage, but only when we reach out to more and more people and do not settle for preaching to the choir. When we do this work, we show our children, families, neighbors, and community who we are and what we believe. We show them that we believe we deserve rights and dignity, and we teach them how to demand the same. Outreach is a core method to find supporters for the work and to grow your base. Organizers should think of community leaders as broadly as possible, who do people in your county, town, or city listen to and respect? That person is a leader that it makes sense to reach out to. Leaders are in neighborhoods, in institutions and outside of them, and in so many other places in every community. Many of the outreach steps are similar for the different outreach targets listed below. What's next? This is only a starter guide. Many local communities have already been working on these issues, have their own contexts and successes, and are looking to meet this moment with what has come before and what can come after. Also, organizing is about bringing people together, and that process is not one that can be fully predicted, you will learn and iterate your approach and plan as you receive feedback from people. We see this guide as giving local organizing a boost and providing some helpful tools where it makes sense. 17. Excerpts from the Safer Party Toolkit Safe Side The System Collective, Audrey Lord Project The Audrey Lord Project is a lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender nonconforming people of color, LGBTSTGNCPOC, Center for Community Organizing, focusing on the New York City area. Through mobilization, education, and capacity building, we work for community wellness and progressive racial and economic justice. Committed to struggling across differences, we seek to responsibly reflect, represent, and serve our various communities. The Safe OU'd Side the System, SOS, Collective is an anti-violence program led by and for LGBTSTGNC PAC. We are devoted to challenging violence that targets LGBTSTGNC PAC, specifically hate and police violence, in central Brooklyn by using community-based strategies rather than relying on the police or state systems. The Safe Neighborhood Campaign, a decade-long, multifaceted initiative, 
generates community-led safety strategies and solidarity with local Brooklyn-rooted and PAC-owned small businesses, organizations, faith-based spaces, neighbors, and community to respond to and intervene in increased policing and communal hate violence targeting LGBTSTGNC PAC. The Safer Party Toolkit is a collection of strategies generated by three generations of SOS members and staff to build safety in party spaces without relying on the police or state systems. It is based on strategies that we've used to build safety for our communities within central Brooklyn. This toolkit is for anyone throwing, attending, or working at a party or community event, that is, partygoers, party promoters, bouncers, and community members. It focuses mostly on preventing violence, stopping violence before it happens, and intervening in violence, stopping violence from getting worse. Goals for the Safer Party Toolkit Create a space in which partygoers' self-determination and safety are prioritized. Prevent and intervene in violence before it escalates. Make a community atmosphere where violence isn't acceptable. Encourage others to intervene or prevent violence from happening. Support survivors of violence. What types of violence can happen at a party? Violence can happen anywhere, but it takes on different forms in different situations. Here are different types of violence that can occur in a party. Between individuals. Sexual violence, unwanted sexual advances, like come-ons or touching, groping in bathroom or door lines, rape, following into a bathroom, being followed, not respecting physical and emotional boundaries. Physical violence, pushing, hitting, throwing objects, throwing drinks, stabbing, shooting, or other forms of violence involving physical touch. Harassment, direct slurs, insults, or threats. Intimidation, hostile looks, attempting to frighten, homophobic and or transphobic, racist, or sexist jokes and statements, isolating someone from community. Between individuals and law enforcement. Sexual violence, groping or inappropriate touching during a frisk, strip searches, physical gender checks, rape, sexual harassment, coercion. Physical abuse, limiting movement, using excessive force, using pepper spray, tasing, shooting. Harassment, questioning, interrogating, or accusing, asking questions without reasonable suspicion or probable cause, asking for personal information, following using slurs, insults, or threats. Gender-slash-sex policing, gender checks on gender nonconforming, non-binary, and trans people, assuming LGBTSTGNC folks are sex workers, questioning gender presentation or legal documentation, and harassing sex workers. No response, refusing or failing to respond to homophobic, transphobic, and all other forms of violence. Initial questions to consider. What skills do people have? What skills could people learn over time? What characteristics of the area could contribute to making a violent situation? For example, a gentrifying neighborhood, gang or turf fights, a history of homophobic violence, transphobic violence, or street harassment, increased police presence, or openly homophobic and transphobic business owners or residents. What is the police presence near your party space? And is the space near public transportation? What is the route like? For example, are there police watchtowers, cops regularly stopping or harassing people, or parked police cars? Have there been instances of violence in the past between partygoers? What kind of violence?
Did these instances involve weapons? What types of violence and harassment have you and your friends experienced in your neighborhood? Such as catcalls, homophobic, racist, or transphobic slurs, physical threats, or violence. What would you do in case of an emergency or crisis? When, if ever, would you deem it necessary to call the police? How would you prevent police violence in that situation? What are the characteristics of your parties or your communities that impact violence? For instance, illegal activity escalating police presence or folks with high consequences for being arrested, such as undocumented people, sex workers, disabled people, and or people on parole. Intervention Steps Intervening in violence can be intimidating for most people, however, there is a lot one person can do without risking personal safety. We know how to intervene and to escalate because we've done it before. Often, intervention skills are about naming and sharpening the ways we've done this effectively before. Because most violent situations escalate from verbal harassment to verbal conflict to physical violence, it's important to intervene before things turn violent. Here are a few tactics you can try. Verbal harassment. Avoid sudden movements that may startle or be perceived as an attack. Create space between the person causing harm and the person being harmed. Clearly explain your purpose or intention to de-escalate, do not respond with threats or verbal attacks. Explain potential consequences like police arriving, arrest, and other harms. Stay calm. Speak slowly, gently, and clearly. Use a firm voice. Verbal conflict slash argument. Clearly state your intention to de-escalate the situation. Do not take sides in the argument. Do not verbally insult either person. Encourage friends to help separate the two people and create physical space. Show that you are listening. Avoid arguing and confronting the people before trying to solve the problem. Show concern and demonstrate that you are actively listening through nonverbal and verbal responses. Speak calmly and clearly. Physical violence. Shout or scream to alert the attacker that someone is watching. Make noise. If outside or in a public space, yell fire. Or something else to distract those involved and bring attention to the situation. Use your camera, cell phone, or digital camera to record the incident. If you do not have access to a camera, write down the place, time, and description of attacker. Keep both hands visible. Use open arms and minimal body contact with all parties. Help all parties get to a safer location. Call ambulance if needed and with the consent of the injured person, but stay at the scene as the ambulance will likely come with police presence. Write down everything police and medics do and say. Safety for party planners. If you are planning a party or will be working at a party, it's important to have a safety plan. The following are ways you can minimize risk, prevent violence from happening, and be more prepared if it does. Safety team, build a team. Create a safety team prior to the party assign roles, and stick to them. Substance use, consider asking all members of the team to refrain from alcohol and other substance use, or to limit their use. These can impact judgment and, if noticeable, can change how police and partygoers interact with you. Roles of the team. Decision point slash team, coordinates the safety team and makes emergency decisions. Purpose, lets the people in your safety team know what the purpose of the team is, to ensure self-determination and a safer party space for everyone. Requires the person to leave personal biases against individuals at the door. 
who, anyone who can make quick decisions, is familiar with the party space and partygoers, and has strong communication skills. De-escalators, intervene in potential incidents and incidents as they are occurring. If physically attacked, de-escalators can and should defend themselves. Who, anyone who is willing and able to verbally and physically intervene in harassment, attacks, and other types of violence. Requires the person to be a strong communicator, have a good relationship with community members, listen to directions, move quickly, and deal with confrontation. Safe transporters, teams of people willing to drive or walk individuals home or to the nearest public transportation. Who, anyone who is familiar with the area, has a cell phone, and is able to move to and from public transportation. Dispatchers, help partygoers connect with the safety team. Who, anyone who is familiar with the safety team members. Creating a plan. It's important to create scenarios of possible situations with your team and create an action plan prior to the party. The following are a few situations that could come up at a party. Create scenarios of other possible situations with your team and create an action plan prior to the party. 1. Situation inside the party, if two people get into a physical altercation at the party. De-escalators, create space between the two individuals. Calmly remind them the party is intended to be a safe space and ask them if they wish to keep the party safe. Calmly ask other partygoers to make space so that the situation can be de-escalated. Do not silence or tone police the people involved. Wait for decision point slash team to arrive in case the situation escalates. Decision point slash team, ensure that individuals have been separated and speak to each person separately. Let them know specific ways that their conflict can increase risk to community safety. Determine whether either or both people should be asked to leave party. Offer an opportunity to follow up in the future. Safe transporters, if either person is asked to leave the party, accompany them to the public transportation they need. Ensure that they are not followed by other partygoers and that they do not re-enter the party. Stay with them until they get on the train or bus, or in a car. Dispatchers, Calmly let other partygoers know that the situation is being de-escalated. Focus on the situation, and avoid being pulled into conversation about what is going on, as this could escalate the situation. Be transparent, if asked, let people know what the intervention and de-escalation processes are. 2. Situation outside the party, if people get into a physical altercation in front of the party. Decision point slash team. Ensure that individuals have been separated and talk to each separately. Let them know specific ways that their conflict can increase risk to community safety. Explain potential consequences to the people, there are a lot of cops in this neighborhood. You could get arrested for this. Let's figure out what to do that won't increase yours or anyone else's risk of arrest or harm. Show empathy and concern in calm ways. Be aware of who has the highest risk and consequences for an arrest, such as people who have a record, are trans or gender non-conforming, or are undocumented. Determine whether either or both people should be asked to leave the party. If the police arrive, use de-escalators to continue to support the emotional and physical needs of individuals involved. Have one person talk to the police. Do not give the police any information that could increase risk of harm or arrest to anyone involved. Response should also be based on the conditions, that is, is it under control or is it still continuing? When the police arrive, if it's under control, they are more likely to engage in conversation with decision makers. If it's not, 
they're more likely to jump in aggressively and begin arresting, pepper spraying, and potentially physically attacking people, etc. If the cops arrive and things are under control, it's best to ask the officers that arrive to identify the ranking officer on site. Introduce yourself. Once you know who the ranking officer is, you can begin to negotiate with them. If there isn't a ranking officer, you can ask that one be called in. In a calm situation, as soon as the police arrive you should say, it's over. Everything is okay. We had a small incident but to escalate it slash solved it, etc. Do not point out who was involved in the fight. If they seem to want to arrest people, calmly ask for the ranking officer on site. When you're speaking to the ranking officer, say things like, can we handle this another way? This isn't necessary. We're separating them and escorting them separately from the party. Everyone is safe. Tell the cops that everything is under control and that the situation has been de-escalated. It's useful to say this to the ranking officer while negotiating to appease the cops, minimize or avoid arrests, and try to get community control of the situation again. If one person has a high risk of arrest and there are additional decision makers, consider physically putting yourself between the officer and the potential arrestee to try to prevent the person's arrest. If decision makers, transporters, de-escalators, and other people attempting to prevent violence are arrested, consider canceling the party, going to the precinct to demand their release, and offering jail and court support. De-escalators, bring additional folks inside and close and lock the door, if you can. Maintain calm and carefully engage friends and loved ones to support de-escalation until the conflict is over and folks involved are on public transportation. Explain to friends and loved ones, can you support us in de-escalating your friend? We're making sure they're as safe as possible. If they're asked to leave would you like to leave as well? If the cops arrive, remove all challenging and escalating situations, such as open containers and drinks outside, illegal substances, and so forth, from immediate view. The police could use the fact that they saw people drinking outside as a reason to ticket, arrest, or raid parties. To reduce risk of police violence, party organizers should ensure that partygoers are not drinking or using substances outside or in front of the entrance. Find ways to calmly show that the community is monitoring the situation, for example, turn on lights, open windows, and record with cell phones. Stop the party and tell partygoers that you're going to monitor the police at a safe distance to help ensure the safety of our folks. Take pictures and video. It would probably be helpful for the person talking to the cops and all team members to know their rights when dealing with law enforcement so they can name and communicate to partygoers when their rights are being violated in or outside the party. Safe transporters. Once the fight is over, partner safe transporters with the de-escalators that help de-escalate the fight. The transporter and de-escalator pairs will accompany involved parties to different places where they can access public transportation. Stay with them until they are safely on transportation. If needed, accompany friends to public transportation once the other group has left. Communicate to decision-making point slash team that folks are safe and on their way. If the police arrest folks, escort family and friends to the precinct. Dispatchers, other folks in attendance should wait to leave until folks involved in the conflict have gotten on public transportation. Ask partygoers where they live or could be going, and support them in figuring out travel and transportation routes. Check in with involved friends and loved ones about their routes as well, and support them in going in a different direction from the other people involved in the conflict. If the police arrive, take down badge numbers and identifying information about officers. 
have police precinct information ready for friends of potential arrestees. Get transporters to send friends to precinct if an arrest occurs. 3. Situation outside the party number 2. If a community member is attacked on the way home from a party while with transporter into escalator team. Decision point slash team. Stay on phone with transporters the entire time. Remain calm and give directions to nearest safe space or to transportation if needed. Continue to attempt to separate the individuals. Who is doing the attacking? What are the roles of transporters if the attacker is not a party member? Decide whether it makes sense to go to another location. If so, what location? Did anyone experience injury? Does anyone, including the transporters and the escalators, need medical attention? Are there other decision makers at the party? Could this situation bring police presence to your party? If necessary, get people medical attention by taking a cab or calling an ambulance, with consent, but be prepared for police presence as well. Consider sending additional de-escalators and transporters to observe, intervene, or de-escalate if necessary. The transporter and de-escalator should consider in advance how they would identify themselves if questioned by police. De-escalators If asked go to the location of an altercation, calmly introduce yourself and state you are there to help de-escalate. Take note of the location, time, and descriptive information about folks involved. Be aware that the de-escalators and their notes can be subpoenaed and used as evidence in court if arrests take place. Safe transporters, if en route, call decision point. If multiple transporters are out, decide ahead if they will all call the same decision person or if dispatch will support. Remain on the phone with decision point until safe location is reached. If unable to get to a safer space, remain calm, get to a more populated well-lit area, and use best judgment. Wait for instructions from decision point. Return to party or other designated safer space as soon as possible. Dispatchers, send to escalators to the location. Create instructions and a route for decision team to communicate to de-escalators. 4. If the police attempt to enter the party. Note, the police do not have the right to enter or search the premises without a warrant. If the police are coming because of a noise complaint or a fight outside of the party, they still do not have the right to enter the party. They can enter without a warrant if folks are coming in and out with drugs or if there's an underage party attendee drinking outside. Decision point slash team, calmly introduce yourself to the police as the coordinator of the party. You do not have to answer their questions, but complete non-responsiveness can escalate the situation. Use a calm yet firm tone with the police. Do not answer unnecessary, homophobic, racist, or transphobic questions about the nature of the party or partygoers. Do not offer any information about partygoers, organizers, and so on. In the case of a noise complaint, offer to lower the noise at the party. You can raise it again once the police have left. Before 11 p.m. they don't have the right to make you lower the noise, depending on the city you live in. However, this also depends on the regulations in the lease of the party space. In case of arrest, decision point should communicate their contact info to the person being arrested. De-escalators, inform the decision point immediately. Do not engage with the cops but say that the party coordinator is on their way. Avoid permitting the police to enter the party by stepping outside and closing the front door. Make sure your cell phone is on you. If necessary, have someone get a decision team member. Keep party members calm and make space between the decision point, police, and the crowd. In case of arrest, 
try to get the legal name and address of the person getting arrested. Note and write down details of the police officer's behaviors, along with their physical description, names, badge numbers, rank, and other identifying information. Find friends of the arrestee and notify them of the arrest. Safe transporters, take friends to the precinct. Dispatchers, inform friends of the local precinct location. 5. If you need to call 911. Every 911 call in NYC goes through the NYPD, and then the medical calls get sent to Emergency Medical Services, EMS. Calls that involve crimes send both police and EMS. Calls that involve higher levels of violence are more likely to get police. Police often accompany EMS in heavily policed, rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods. Decision point slash team, decide if this is a situation where you should call 911 or get someone medical attention through a cab. Remember that individuals with certain medical conditions should not be moved. If you still decide to call 911, you have the right to not allow the police inside your space. However, if EMS does not feel safe for whatever reason, they can bring them in. EMS can also cancel NYPD if they want to. De-escalators, clear space for EMS within the party. Support individuals who are upset, and clear partygoers from the injured person and EMS. Know your options, safety planning. List names and phone numbers for three people who will be at the party and whom you would trust to help you and other partygoers get away from a violent situation. List three people who will not be at the party whom you would trust to support you and other partygoers who experience or witness violence. List one easily accessible, that is, open later 24 hours, within walking distance, and open to the public, business or organization where you can go to get away from a violent situation. If applicable, list two possible routes to and from public transportation. List the closest public hospital. It's helpful to know where the local police precincts are, their numbers, and the quickest way to get there. Make a list of supportive resources, such as local hospitals, lawyers, or legal organizations you can call, LGBTQ direct service organizations, and local cop watch groups. The Safer Party Toolkit is an ongoing labor of love and necessity, first imagined and implemented in 2007 by members and staff of the Safe OU Side the System Collective. Many thanks to the members and staff who came before us, imagined a vision, and built safety outside of state systems. Part 3, we didn't call it TJ, but maybe it worked anyway? Messy, real stories.